Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and happy Halloween weekend. Woo! It's finally here. It is time. <laughs> so for Halloween, what are your plans, Lindsay? My brother has this amazing party every year where he just goes all out. Great decor. Everything's very intense. He builds his own haunted house from like scratch. Like he builds a structure. So he's got a really intense theme. This year, I think it's the witch trials. Love it. Mm-hmm. That sounds so fun. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Well, I've told Lindsay this. I don't think I've said it on here yet. But my son, he's five. He decided that he wanted to be Alexa for Halloween. Now, not <laughs> not like a cartoon character. It is the Amazon device. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we just finished his costume. It's ridiculous. And uh, we're probably going to be going trick-or-treating or there's a bunch of festivals that I've bookmarked and I haven't actually made plans for yet. So we'll be doing something. I just Googled Amazon Alexa like Halloween costumes it does not disappoint. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. He's so stoked. We put a light around the top. Oh, yeah. Gotta have the light. That's important. He wants people to ask him questions. Oh, my gosh. You should get him like a little boom box, whatever they're called now, because I feel like they're probably not called boom boxes. And then so you can be like, Alexa, play some music. And then this way he could play music. You mean a Bluetooth speaker, Lindsay? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Yes, we were thinking about that, but then he wants to answer the questions. So I don't even know what we'll be doing. Oh, gosh, I am excited for his answers. Oh, they're going to be something. So because it's so close to Halloween, today we'll be talking about tragic, horrible things that have happened around Halloween or on Halloween. Yeah, it's our annual Halloween true crime episode. Yeah. So in the spirit of Halloween, I was looking up, you know, every year there's like the most popular Halloween candy by state. Yes. Well, CandyStore.com posted last month their findings this year. Okay. And what do you think for Maryland? Oh, Maryland? Mm-hmm. I was surprised by ours. I do not agree. Snickers. Maryland, number one was Hershey's Kisses. Number two was Reese's Cups, which I can get behind that. And third was Hershey's Mini Bars. So if you've been following us for a long time, you know that one of the themes of our show is me slowly wearing Amanda down to move to Maryland. <laughs> I wanted to just submit another thing to you. So you know what Hershey is, right? Did you know that they have a theme park? I did, yes. It's like an hour and some change away. That's one of the amazing amenities that Maryland has to offer is that our proximity to Hershey Park. Well, let me just get out my list real quick. And just add it on there. <laughs> yeah. Well, ours was hot tamales. I love them. I hate them. Also, <laughs> I can't imagine being like, you know what I want? A spicy candy. Yeah. In fucking Arizona. It's like 300 degrees on Halloween. You're just burning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The second was Hershey's Kisses and the third was Snickers. Snickers are solid. Sure. I like the Snickers ice creams. Oh, they're good too. But I did find it really cool too to see that this year the annual 2021 Halloween candy spending survey came back too. Oh. And we're up to $3 billion compared to last year's 2020 of $2.4 billion. I was talking to an employee at Michael's about like how long they were going to have their Halloween section up. Did they cackle? They were like, probably a few weeks into November. Liar. I was like, is it because we all just really need Halloween this year? And he was like, I think so. I don't know anyone who's not like, it's spooky season. I'm already surrounded by people who like Halloween, but I feel like everyone, even people who aren't like yay spooky things, are ready for Halloween this year. I was bummed that, what was it, like the first weekend in October, most of our Halloween stuff was gone. Yes. So yeah, I just thought those were interesting little facts. And again, that's candystore.com. They have all of the uh, tables and surveys and all the fun stuff about Halloween. Very interesting. So I looked up trending Halloween costumes because I'm just fascinated by that. Yeah. This is from Real Simple. So do you have an idea on what the number one trending on Google Halloween costume is? I think it's kind of predictable. Is it Scream? Is it Ghostface? No, it's Squid Game. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
which feels right. I bet you just like infinite dollars that you couldn't guess number two. <laughs> well, clearly I couldn't even guess number one. So yeah. Yeah. What? What's number two? It's a, a gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I don't know. <laughs> then Britney Spears. Okay. Yeah. Then Carnage. Okay. Then Venom. Okay. Well, Carnage is like red Venom, right? Are you a fan of Venom? I just didn't think both of them. Have you seen the new movie? It's amazing. 10 out of 10. A great time. Okay. Do you want to know couples costumes? Sure. Trixie and Timmy Turner. It's the Fairly Odd Parents. It's like the fairy godparents. That's still a thing? I guess, apparently. Okay. And then it's Bonnie and Clyde. Traditional. Okay. What year are you looking at? This year. Okay. I know. And then there's Skid and Pump. I don't know what that is. That it's Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It feels like this isn't from this year, but it is. No. No. You've taken us back a few years. Yeah. Who's gonna? <laughs> who's dressing up as Mr. and Mrs. Smith? That's just like a pretty woman in a dress and a handsome guy in a suit. Like, the end. Okay. Well, I guess... If people need ideas, they need to talk to my five-year-old. He's got better ideas. And then maybe just like the real simple people were not doing great research because the last one is also from the Fairly Odd Parents and it's Cosmo and Wanda. Okay. Okay. For babies, guess what the first one is? A pumpkin. Squid Game. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Our society's lost their fucking minds. Do you have a guess what the number one for dogs is? Is it Squid Games? Yeah, it's Squid Game again. <laughs> I Google popular costumes here, but I just need you to see what came up. Oh, so Amanda, her Google algorithm was like, you want sexy Toy Story, right? And it's like a very tight pair of shorts on a man that are silver. So it's like a sexy Buzz Lightyear with like cuffs. Which, for whatever reason, the Google algorithm thought you wanted that. But I want to know, like, what is a dog squid game costume? But, like, when you type in dog, it pops up. Oh, it's just, like, their uniforms. Okay. Well, my dogs are going to be pumpkins. Possibly a ghost for one of them. (laughs) So when you type in dog squid game costume, the internet thinks you just want animal costumes. Please look at this animal squid costume. It's an octopus. It's not a squid. Do you see it? Please get that for one of your cats. (laughs) It's not a fucking cat. It's on the fucking, it's the eyes. The cat just like kill me. Yeah. Also, like a fun pastime is to just like look at the cats that are in the cat costumes because like all of them have a face of just like, end me now. What have I done? <laughs> I hate life. Why me? Yeah. What is, what is why? And then the second for dogs is apparently a race car. Okay. Sure. And for anyone that does dress up their pets, tag us. Oh my God, please. I want to have all the pet costumes. Yes. I've seen all of the uh, dogs as little ghosts lately, the TikToks, and they're so cute. Love them. Love them. Well, we started out excited and now we're going to talk about some tragedies. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to talk about some fucked up stuff. We had to hype ourselves up. We had to hype ourselves up. We hyped you up after. Yeah. I feel like yeah, after or during, you know, part of it's part of it. It's what you do while you listen is you Google animal costumes. Yeah. So all of these true crime events that we'll be telling you about have happened around Halloween. So they were either attending Halloween parties, something about Halloween was happening during the tragedy. Yeah. So the first one I'll tell you about is Yoshihiro Hattori and his death. In October of 1992, Yoshi was killed on his way to a Halloween party in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He was only 16 years old and he was a Japanese exchange student. He had arrived to stay with his host family during the summer, so he wasn't there terribly long. He was super excited. He was well-loved by everyone he met, and he was very active. He played things like rugby, and while he was in the U.S., he joined a jazz dance class that he did very well at, from what I've seen. On Saturday, October 17th, his host parents went to go see a movie while Yoshi and their son, his name was Webb Haymaker, made their way to a Halloween party. Yoshi went as John Travolta, from Saturday Night Fever and Webb went as an accident victim. They were trying to find the party when they saw a house with Halloween decor and a few cars in the driveway. So they thought maybe this is the house that they were looking for. The house number for the party was 10131. But this one was 10311. So close. Yeah. So like at a glance, I could see their mistake. 
we've made that mistake before. Not for a Halloween party, but yeah, looking for a house. Yeah. So the boys then knocked on the door, but no one answered right away. A little bit later, they saw a woman open the side door, but then quickly slam it closed. The boys were pretty confused because, of course, they thought they were at a party and thought, well, maybe we do have the wrong house. And they started to walk away. Then Rodney Pierce opened the door holding a 44 Magnum revolver. Yoshi turned back towards the man. Webb believes that maybe he didn't quite understand that the man was holding a gun or that maybe he just thought it was like a Halloween thing, like a prank or a scare of some kind. But Yoshi started singing because he was so excited. We're here for the party. We're here for the party. Yeah. Rodney yells freeze, but Yoshi moved forward. Rodney then fired one time and hit Yoshi in the chest, then slammed the door. The haymakers, his host family, was paged by police and advised that Webb was fine, but unfortunately Yoshi was not. They went to the police station to get Webb and let him know what happened to Yoshi. Webb really didn't know because once the ambulance took him away, he didn't get to go with him, so he didn't know what to expect. And when they told Webb, his reply was his poor mother. Yeah, this one hurt my heart. This one was sad. Yeah. So Yoshi's parents were notified by the exchange program. And two days later, Yoshi's parents, Miyako and Masaichi Hattori, flew to New Orleans. The first thing they asked the haymakers was, how is Webb? So their son. And I read a little bit about Webb's parents and they were just terrified for Yoshi's parents to come because they're like, we were supposed to keep him safe while he was visiting us and we failed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, like this is not something that they could have predicted what happened. Anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. Like you would never have thought that like a kid would go out to a Halloween party and that this would happen. Or even that like you'd knock on the wrong door and that this would happen. Because it shouldn't happen. Yeah, I agree with you. So Yoshi's story became global news. So it was all over in a bunch of different countries. Yeah, so people in Japan were pretty shocked because their gun laws in comparison to the US are a lot more strict. And there, in order to get a gun, it takes a significant effort. Whereas here, it's pretty easy to get a gun. Yeah. Shockingly easy to get a gun. And also in Japan, you can't even own a handgun. And then to try to get another type of gun, you have to kind of like jump through a bunch of hoops because it's highly regulated. And there are tests, there are exams, checks and follow ups. It's a lot. Which I feel like I generally am not a huge fan of guns. I also didn't grow up in like a gun family. But like I can see for hunting outside of that, I'm like, Ugh. because I think that when you're talking about protecting your home, your gun could just as easily be used against you. And, you know, you have terrible accidents like this. We're like, say it's you think it's an intruder, but it's your spouse coming home or sleepwalking, right? Like, yeah. So Yoshi's parents launched a campaign in Japan calling for an end to the easy access to firearms to the U.S., which it sucks that they had to do that in a different country, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like in America, so often we're pointing our finger at different countries going like, we don't like the way you do this. We don't like the way you do that with zero self-reflection, right? Do you feel like that happens a lot? A hundred percent. But so with Rodney, his trial was a media circus. Police had initially released him without charge, and they assumed that he was within his rights to shoot a trespasser. But after complaints from Louisiana's governor and Japan's consul in New Orleans, he was finally charged with manslaughter. So Rodney's lawyers said his actions were in self-defense. They tried to say that Rodney was, quote, one of your neighbors who was reacting to Yoshi's extremely unusual way of moving. Bizarre. Like an excited teenager to go to a party. I feel like he couldn't have looked threatening. No. And I feel like unusual way of moving. It all kind of comes back to like he didn't recognize him. He just panicked because he was like, oh, you're a kid I don't know. And whether or not the fact that he like wasn't a white kid, does that play into it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is partially his wife asked him to go and get the gun. Ugh. So Rodney's wife, Bonnie, was the one who had first opened the door. And Yoshi said, we're here for the party. And that scared her. And she told her husband to go get the gun. Yeah, like he was in weird clothes. Okay. You know, like it's a costume. But also around Halloween, I expect to see kids and teens in odd getups, right? 
Yeah. And also there's we're here for the party and there's we're here for the party. And those are two different ways of saying that. Right. One of them feels threatening like you're the party. Yeah. I could see a delivery in which that statement could be scary. But in the context of the explanation of what actually happened, it doesn't seem scary to me. No. And then also she said, go get the gun. Right. Yeah. If it were me or if I was in some sort of situation, wouldn't you look out either a window or a peephole first and then see these boys are literally leaving? They went to walk away from what I understand. And then he opens the door. Then Yoshi turns around because he's like, look, like they opened it. But had he not opened the door, these boys would have left. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. So in May of 1993, Rodney was acquitted after a jury deliberated for just three hours. During the trial, Yoshi was described as being, quote, out of control and, quote, hyperactive and being a, quote, hyperactive Japanese exchange student who thought his job was to scare people. What? Like, what even? I hate that. When I was reading about this case, and I watched a couple things on it, too, because it was, yeah, like a worldwide news story. And it just hurt my heart that this poor little boy was just here to learn, you know, like here temporarily and lost his life because he was excited to attend a party. Yeah, I hate it so much. Like, that shouldn't have been a thing. And also, like, why was it relevant that he was a Japanese exchange student? It's not. The phrase could have been, he was out of control, he was an hyperactive teenager who thought it was his job to scare people, right? Like, it's not relevant to, like, what's going on here. So Yoshi's parents continued their campaign and started a petition that ended up getting 1.7 million Japanese signatures, and Dick Haymaker grabbed 150,000 U.S. signatures, which I feel like is a good bit, right? It's a lot. Especially in the U.S. Like, I feel like that's a high number. So these signatures happened to be all through telephone calls and through the mail. And this was before Facebook, obviously, and online petitions. So it took longer. Yeah, it took actual effort. Because now, like, you could post something, people share it. It's super easy. Yeah, done and done. But this was like manual labor to get these signatures. Yeah. And Dick said, the beginning was doing the petition drive and just throwing my life at that. And then I threw my life at Washington. And then I threw my life at trying to get an appointment with the president. And I did in the end. In November of 1993, as part of their campaign, both families were in Washington. President Clinton spoke to the families in the Oval Office. The way they were able to do this was they were able to get a note from Miko to a friend of the family who was staying at the White House. That person who was staying happened to be an old roommate of Bill Clinton's. So like, it gives me kind of chills just like thinking about it like they got there but I also hate that like here is this massively important thing that needs to be discussed and talked about and the way that it got there was through a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend and like that kind of sucks that like to be heard it's who you know and like of course that's how it is but it also just because you're friends with somebody important it doesn't make your experience or what you have to say more important right yeah and that they had to rely on luck Yes, yes. They weren't given what they should have been given. They just had to get lucky and be able to get this appointment. Yeah. So they proposed gun control measures, and it was the 30th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, so it helped raise awareness. And it's interesting that we talk about a Kennedy here, because we're going to bring up a Kennedy later on, too. In the same month, Congress passed the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, which mandated background checks on gun buyers and a five-day waiting period on all purchases. Yeah, and from what I understand, this was already kind of on its way to being passed. Like, it was proposed before this happened. Yeah. But their momentum and everything might have helped pass it quicker. It also blows my mind. It's like you look back at before like 1990 for me. I thought there was some level of our government having their shit together. But it very much feels like it was the Wild West. Truly the Wild West. But so the Hattori's launched a civil suit against Rodney Pierce, his wife, and their home insurance company. The insurer paid out $100,000 and Judge William Brown told the court that self-defense was not acceptable and that there was no justification whatsoever that a killing was necessary for Rodney to save himself. Right, because it wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, the Hattori's left all of the money in the United States to fund gun control measures, which I feel like you hear often victims' families taking to civil court right? To fight against what happened to their relative in some way. And I feel like there's often a lot of blowback on that, right? They're like, you just want money. You just want that. You just want this. And sometimes the wallet is the only way in which you can get some level of validation. 
validation but also like punishment kind of yeah yeah and like this didn't really affect him no and so the fact that they were like we're leaving it here because y'all need to fix this Mm -hmm. yeah so the hotoris are still active in their fight for gun control and they even spoke to survivors from the february 2018 parkland shooting and took part in the march for our lives yeah there's pictures of them with the march for our lives posters yeah and it was just really sweet i i did march for our lives too here in phoenix and just the stories that you hear from it are heartbreaking yeah i mean it's just mind-blowing so the haymakers were also involved for a long time and have donated hundreds of thousands to gun control groups they also gave money to create the yoshihiro hattori memorial fund to help cover costs for japanese students who study at carlton college my heart so all of this i I know it's a whole different level but when we talk about tim miller and all the other families involved with texas killing fields and a few other stories that we've told where the family are like okay we lost a loved one but like we want to end this this is another example of two families for one boy yeah that were fighting for what happened to him yeah so as much as it was like sad to research i'm like look at them go look at the things that they were able to accomplish and help with yeah all right so this next one is also another heavy one and it's the murder of martha moxley and now this one spans over a long period of time yeah so it would probably take up it would be like another texas killing fields i think if we really went over every single piece of information so tonight because i really think her story is a really interesting one to tell We're going to go over big points of the story. You'll still get the understanding of what happened, but maybe perhaps in the future we'll we'll do a couple episodes on all of the details because it's just absolutely insane. Yeah. And we'll talk about it at the end, too. But this leaves you with so many questions. And I think that's one of the saddest things about this case is that I can't imagine this being one of my relatives and just having so many what ifs, what happened? Why is this like this? And it's just hard. Yeah. Not having answers at any point, but the fact that it goes back so far and today it's still not known is just horrific. This happened on October 30th of 1975 when Martha, who was only 15 at the time, went out with friends for mischief night. And we talked about this on one of our Halloween episodes last year a little bit, but it's when the kids run around and cause trouble. Some can be innocent fun and others can be ridiculous tricks. Yeah, we also we talked about how like in Detroit, how they took it a little too far. There was serial arson like... Yeah, it went way too far. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that that's what they were doing. It sounded like more of like a little kickback is how I perceived it. Is that what the kids call it? A kickback? Yeah, you guys don't call it a kickback? Is that like when you're hanging out? Yeah, drinking and hanging out as teens. What do you call it? Hanging out. I'm sure kids today call it a kickback. We called it a kickback. Never called it a kickback. It was just like existing. Okay, I'm going to go exist with friends, mom. Yeah. Okay. All right. Who could say? We'll keep on kicking. But anyways, so they were in a fairly safe, very wealthy neighborhood in Greenwich, Connecticut. Martha's family had moved there because they believed it to be the safest place to raise a family. Oh, yeah. The pictures of this area are beautiful. The houses are gigantic. They're gorgeous. There's grass and trees everywhere. It's just it's a stunning place. So her friends last saw her talking to 17-year-old Thomas or Tommy Skakel, and she was last seen by the Skakel family's pool house. Around noon on Halloween day, Martha's body was found in front of her home by her childhood friend, Sheila McGuire. She had been bludgeoned with a six-iron golf club, and the murderer also used a jagged piece to stab her. She was laying face down and her pants were pulled around her ankles. Forensics later confirmed that there were no signs of sexual assault or rape, though. The golf club was missing its head, and it was later found in the driveway. So I think they were hitting her so hard that the golf club came apart. The fucking fuck? Like, why? It's truly awful. And I watched some of the interviews with like her mom and stuff, and it it was just terrible. And then on top of it, like her friend finding her, awful. Yeah. So police theorized that she had been murdered between about 9.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. the night prior. The public assumed the murderer was someone outside the gated community because, you know, nothing bad happens here. There's no murders, nothing. But then there was evidence that came up pretty quickly to 
show that the club came from a set from the Skakel home. So then authorities began questioning. Tommy had been the last one seen with her. So he was a person of interest pretty quick. Then it was they had a live in tutor named Ken Littleton at his house. And it kind of turned to him because at one point he failed a polygraph test. However, neither could be really linked to the crime. And we talked before about how unreliable polygraphs are Mm -hmm. and that like it's not really any reliable measure. Yeah. I feel like oftentimes like you use it to pile on evidence. Like when you have like seven other things, maybe that can be a cherry, but it shouldn't be the first scoop of ice cream in my opinion. Hmm. Agreed. So I'm not going in precise order of the way that they questioned, but ultimately they did end up questioning Tommy's brother, Michael. And the weird thing that they noticed was they weren't consistent with their stories of what happened that night of the murder. They also had weak alibis. So from their perspective, Tommy claimed that Martha had walked home around 9.30 p.m. after they had hung out and that he had gone around the same time to go and watch some of the French connection with his tutor, Kenneth Littleton, which is very bizarre to me to be with your tutor late at night. But anyways, yeah. So he also said that he went up to his room afterwards to work on a school project. It feels like he's like lying to seem like a good kid. Isn't that what that sounds like? It couldn't be me. I was working on homework. I was doing homeworky homework. Exactly. It's weird. Like I know I've gone home after something. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to work on that back in high school and college. But I don't know. I just didn't buy it. Not on Halloween. No, not around Halloween. So Kenneth Littleton confirmed that Thomas didn't join him, though, until around 1030 or closer to 1030. And Michael came home within about a half hour of it. Michael said, though, that he had gone with a cousin to go watch Monty Python at his house during the time of the murder. Hmm. His brother, John, confirmed that they were together at his cousin's house until about 11 p.m. And he also took a polygraph and passed, which again, polygraph, sure. So next, we're going to talk about some of the details about that night. So the Skagel kids went to dinner with their live-in tutor at the Bellhaven Club and alcohol was served. Their father at this point was out of town. Later, they met up with their friends, which included Martha for Mischief Night. Around 9.30, some of the Skakel kids got into a vehicle to head to their cousin's house to watch TV. Tommy stayed behind and a friend saw him and Martha flirting in the driveway. Sometime between 10.30 and 11, Martha's mom, Dorothy, noticed she didn't come home and had her brother, John, look for her, but he didn't see her. So they called all of her friends and then the police. The next day, Martha's body was found by her friend under a tree in the yard. Could you even imagine? Yeah. In just the state of how it looked. Ugh. Yeah. So during the Dateline interview with Dorothy, she talked about how a year after the murder, Michael was found drunk in front of their house. And she then learned about a lot of the problems he was having. He already had a drinking problem and had bounced between schools. In 1978, Michael was charged with drunk driving. To avoid prosecution, the Skakel family made a deal with police for Michael to attend the Elon School. And that was a controversial youth behavior modification treatment center in Maine, which to me, that sounds like, I don't know if you watched the Paris Hilton documentary at all. It's actually a very interesting watch. Yeah, I want to watch it eventually. Yeah. Yeah. She talks about like her experience in a youth behavior modification treatment center and how brutal it can be. Yeah. There's some videos of this one that was in the Dateline episode. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, I could never imagine wanting to send a loved one there. Why does that exist? It's awful. Yeah. I mean, I understand that if you have a teenage kid and they're aggressive or violent or they seem out of control and it's your job to make sure they become a healthy, productive member of society, you're probably panicking or, you know, it could be a situation where you're scared of your own kid. I also I still can't imagine abusing your child and or sending your child somewhere to be abused. Right. It's almost like I, I don't know what to do. So I'm just doing this instead. Like this is all I can think to do, which I'm not a parent. So I don't know how hard that would be. Do you know what I mean? To like get to that point with your kid where you're like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, they sent him there to basically avoid getting in trouble for his drunk driving. Yeah. Things that you can do with money. Right. Right. But there's a lot of things that happened at this modification center that caused a lot of information to come up that could or could not be correct. 
Yeah. So the case was popularized over the years because Michael was one of the nephews of Ethel Skakel Kennedy, who was the widow of Senator Robert F. Kennedy. There was also a rumor that made its way around that William Kennedy Smith, a member of the Kennedy family that was acquitted for rape in 1991, might have been at the Skakel house the night of the murder. And so that rumor prompted the reinvestigation of the case at that time. And at that point, it was a cold case. So opening it back up meant that they were moving resources now, right? Because they were in a box on a shelf gathering dust. Yeah, it caught the attention of people who had it looked at again at this time because of that rumor. Yeah, which turned out to be incorrect from what I've seen. But that rumor did get it reopened. Yeah. So a private detective agency, the Sutton Associates, was hired by Michael's family and conducted its own investigation and found that Michael altered his story. He changed his alibi multiple times throughout the years of investigation and even at one point said he was window peeping and masturbated in a tree outside the Moxley property between 11.30 p.m. and 12.30 a.m. before getting spooked and then going home. He claimed he did this after his cousin's house. That's a very bizarre thing to lie about if he was lying. Well, a few things with that, right? At that time, she would have already been dead, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, according to, I've seen varying, they said about 9.30 to 10, but then later on, they're like, well, maybe it was slightly later. Whatever the fact, what was he looking at, right? This didn't, from what I understand, it doesn't look at her window either. Yeah. Right? It's just like outside their house. And then two, he just placed himself at the crime scene. And from what I was reading, they believe that maybe he did that on purpose in case they found DNA evidence. He could be like, well, yeah, it was just chilling in the tree. Bizarre bizarre but also once you say that you change your alibi multiple times and that your story isn't hitting the same key parts i'm suspect yeah so obviously as amanda mentioned this placed him at the crime scene and his story changed in either 93 or 94 it changes depending on the source you look at so there was a book written by mark Furman, a detective that is primarily known for the oj simpson murder case and he said he solved the crime and that it was michael Okay, convenient, my guy. Yeah. So at this point, Michael was sober and helping people with their recovery. But some people from his past started to come forward with more information. Some were saying that he said things like he admitted to murdering Martha, that he might have done it, and that he doesn't know if he did. That's a lot to unpack. Yeah. First off, if you admitted to it, that makes me think you know. But also... It seems like obviously he had a drinking problem, a very severe drinking problem. At 15. At 15. And 15-year-olds' brains are still developing. So you add alcohol into the mix. Bad mix. Bad mix. It's a bad mix. And so even if he didn't do it, I would imagine that he would think he did, right? From the blips he has. But I kind of mean to kind of feel like he should do it. Yeah, there's a a lot. There's a lot that happens. Yeah. Michael was arrested in 2000. So during a pretrial hearing that same year, a friend of Michael's, Andy Pugh, had testified about a phone call he and Michael had in 1991. On this phone call, Andy said he confronted Michael about suspicions. And Michael at that point denied killing her, but admitted to masturbating in a tree the night that Martha died. Fucking weird. And the timelines don't match up. So it's just a bizarre admission. So maybe he was incredibly stupid, right? And to place himself there. But then also, what if he is just stupid? And he went and he did the weird things in the tree and she wasn't there at that time. Like, what if he didn't? And hours later, her body's brought there. It's so weird because it could technically go either way. Yeah. But either way, like saying the precise place that she was found makes me either think, yeah, obviously he was the one that did it. He was by that tree and he's trying to cover his butt saying like, oh, that's the reason my DNA's there. Or what if someone saw him there that night and then is like, oh, well, yeah, maybe someone else saw him there. I can put this here and no one will know. It's just very weird. I also wonder, too, could it have been a different night that he was in that tree and that he knew that somebody would be like, hey, I've seen him in the fucking tree being a creep. If he's an alcoholic, I would imagine that his date keeping isn't immaculate. Different interactions could kind of blur. But who could fucking say? His brain is Swiss cheese, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to this. Or he's a liar. Also, just to note, in one of the trials, they did go over what trees were there, which ones would have been climbable, and which ones they think perhaps were not climbable. So it seems like it was up in the air as to which tree he might have climbed. I can't seem to find exactly which one it would have been or if one would have even made more sense than another because from the diagrams that I was able to find, none of them would have really been safe to climb where he would have wanted to like actually see something inside the house. 
But again, some of the diagrams are really, really hard to see. And the pictures aren't the easiest to tell what kind of tree would have been climbable. Yeah. So during the trial in 2002, two former students from the Elon School had their stories come up. And Gregory Coleman was one of them. He testified before a grand jury at one point and at a probable cause hearing that Skakel had told him, I'm going to get away with murder because I'm a Kennedy and that he was, in fact, the one that killed Martha. I hate it so, so much. However, he wasn't able to actually testify at the trial because he had died of a drug overdose. And interestingly enough, it came up that when he was testifying in front of the grand jury that he was on heroin at the time. So his story is interesting because you're like, well, is it true? A lot of people were like, well, can we rely on that? Yeah. Another student, Elizabeth Arnold, said that Michael felt his brother quote, stole his girlfriend, and that it was both boys who were interested in Martha. There was a student named Sarah Peterson who discussed her time at the school and said that she first saw Michael when he was scrubbing the floor with a sign that said, please confront me about the death of my neighbor, Martha Moxley. Bizarre. Yeah, she said like when she got to the school, he had the sign and it was like unusually long. It was very weird for him to have to wear it, but that was like another form of humiliation, essentially torture. Yeah. And humiliation that they put to these students. Yeah. Yeah. But her interviews in the Dateline episode as well. She says he never confessed, but if he did, the entire school would have known. And I'm sure that is the case, though, right? Like something like that would have been a big deal. She also said that he was very humble and never brought up that he was a Kennedy to get away with the murder thing. And generally, you can look up videos. It is abuse of children. It's pretty fucking bad. There's a reason why when we said like the Elon school, you probably went, oh, I've heard of that. Mm -hmm. So the prosecution also pointed out that only Michael's family members could confirm him being at his cousin's house the night of the murder. And there was also a recording of Michael talking about the tree incident and saying that he was drunk and high and he was worried someone might have saw him. So on June 7th of 2002, Michael was found guilty of murdering Martha Moxley and was sentenced to 20 years to life at the Garner Correctional Institute in Newton, Connecticut. So in October of 2013, Michael was granted a new trial by Judge Thomas A. Bishop that ruled that Michael's lawyer, Michael Sherman, failed to adequately represent his client when he was first convicted. And so this was done because he had claimed that his representation had provided him ineffective assistance of counsel and had billed him over $1.5 million. And so during the same time, that same representation, Michael Sherman, pled guilty for failing to pay $390,000 in taxes in 2001 and 2002 and was sentenced to one year in federal prison. So it was in the public spotlight over these years, one, because the media kept spinning it. Oh, it's a relative of the Kennedys. And then two, because of all the different changes the the court system he was going through. So eventually, on November 21st of 2013, he was released on a $1.2 million bond. Woof. And while the case was pending, this is very interesting to me, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's Michael's cousin, wrote and published a book called Framed, Why Michael Skakel Spent Over a Decade in Prison for a Murder He Didn't Commit. And this was a very popular book. Interestingly, they befriended each other during their recovery journeys. So it's not like they like grew up together. They started hanging out when they were going through a similar time. Okay. So he says the press framed him by attaching the Kennedy name to the case and that it was absolutely unfair. Also that the statement generated revenue to the media. So it got them more clicks, right? Yeah. I see that. That makes sense. Because from what I understand, the Skakel family and the Kennedy family realistically weren't ever really together. I want to say it was on Dateline or something where they're like, there's not even pictures of both sets of families together. Yeah. So it's literally just the name down the line, right? So during that same interview with Dateline, Robert showed pictures that were used of Michael during the trial. And he says they were pictures of when he, quote, beefed up, which happened four years later, compared to his 15-year-old, quote, shrimp pictures from the time of the murder. So they were showing like these bulky pictures like, look, like, oh, of course he could overpower 
a young woman. But realistically, the picture that he showed on the interview was like this little thin boy playing tennis. Yeah. And he's like, you know, that's quite different. And honestly, I do see that. Like if you're showing these big bulky pictures of someone and being like, could he do something wrong? Like, yeah, he could. But if you showed me a young boy, I would question it a little bit more like, well, hmm. Well, what's really strange is just evidence wise, you have to weigh whether it's prejudicial as compared to how relevant it is. It sounds like his counsel sucked if those pictures got in yeah it could have been too like the media was using this so like everyone was looking at him like yep he could be a killer it's just like this table full of pictures that he was talking about and he also named john so martha's brother john as a possible suspect and said that their housekeeper found blood in their family home the next morning so john's interviewed within dateline as well and he's like well he's just throwing names out there and seeing what sticks and robert also claims that the police overlooked evidence against john but also says in that same interview that he doesn't actually believe that he killed his sister but i think his point was like look at all these other people that could have had things looked at more stringently that were overlooked because they were going after my cousin he also brought up tommy in the book and says yeah his story changed too there's so many more details from that night But again, he's also like, my other cousin's not the killer either. His book sounds so strange. And I thought it was kind of odd to just be like, well, here's this person. Here's this person. Here's this evidence against them. But then on the other side, I'm like, the more I thought about it, I'm like, okay, like that does kind of make sense because they did target in on one person when maybe perhaps there was information they could have looked at more. It was an interesting interview. Another thing that came up was a man named Tony Bryant, who also has a famous cousin, Kobe Bryant. And he was a classmate of Michael's who was contacted after the trial by Robert. And he claims that he would visit with some schoolmates and one of them had kind of an obsession with Martha. At the time of the murder, he was living in New York City and he would often return to Greenwich. And one of those nights happened to be the night before Halloween. And he says that he was in town and he had brought those same schoolmates with him and they were drinking and hanging out on the Skakel property. They picked up golf clubs from the lawn and one of the schoolmates talked about assaulting girls and the way that he said it was caveman style. So he said that he did suspect his friends, but he didn't ask questions because he was afraid. After the taped interview, though, of Tony, he stopped cooperating with Michael's defense. But Robert tracked down the two men that he was talking about. They admitted to being in the neighborhood, but then their stories changed. They ended up pleading the fifth when it came time to testify. I also think it's very interesting because a lot of people think that you can just plead the fifth and be like, no, I'm not going to speak. Right. Like they're like, that's like your right to silence. But it's not that it's literally your right to not incriminate yourself for a crime. So I would be raising my eyebrows. Yeah. Robert did a lot. He looked at a lot of things. And at one point, too, they asked Dorothy, who's Martha's mom, like, will you be reading his book? And her response is, I have to. She wants to see everything. And it was funny because Dateline asked Robert, like, do you think that Dorothy will read this book? He's like, no. And they're like, well, we asked her and she said she has to. And like, he stopped for a moment. He's like, oh. And you kind of see like, I thought panic in his eyes, like, oh, she's going to read my book. But then they talked about how it's going to cause her pain. And I just felt so bad because she's she just looks like the sweetest little old lady now. Yeah. And she just wants to know what happened to her daughter. I think you can often think like, oh, like they want X, Y, Z to pay. But I think at the heart, like most families, they just want justice for their relative. And especially like a parent with a child, they want to know what happened and who was responsible. Right. And she was doing everything right. She lived in this beautiful neighborhood. It sounds like, you know, gated community where nothing bad ever happens. And she did her research. And then, of course, that's what happens to her. Yeah. And I mean, it's like the thing is like you can put your kids behind a gate and you can put them in a fence neighborhood. But like at the end of the day, bad people are still going to do bad things no matter where you are. Right. Well, back to these two guys. Robert was asked too, well, are you worried that they might possibly sue you? And I thought this was interesting. His response was, they should sue me if they're innocent. And like, that's a very bold thing to say, right? I I guess in my opinion, that's very bold. Yeah. But I mean, he has a lot of money, right? So maybe he's not worried about it. Tony declined being interviewed by Dateline, which I thought was kind of interesting, too, that he's like, nope, I said what I said. I'm not talking about it anymore. And then the Moxleys do not believe the story 
And they said that if Tony had been there that night, that people would have seen him because he was known by the other teens in town. So it'd be very weird that if they were all hanging out in the Skakel property, which was big, though. So, you know, I see it both ways. But that other kids would have seen him and, you know, the two schoolmates that he brought along with him. Is it possible that they were in costumes? At least some of them. Well, it sounds like they were like kind of on the lawn. Maybe. They didn't talk about it, but I mean, I wouldn't put it past anyone. So Dateline also tried to reach out to the two men. One's name was Burton Tinsley, who never responded, but also over the years has denied being involved. And Al Hasbrook. And he wasn't on Dateline, but his attorney was. And his attorney talked about how he was innocent. Seemed just a little sketchy to me. Yeah, there's a lot. There's so many holes in all of this that you could probably take days to just look at every single thing that happened because there's so many twists and turns. So all of this information came up in failed appeals. And we're not going to get too in the weeds with like the procedural history because it's first off, it's messy. And secondly, it's probably not very interesting to be like, and then they filed this and then they filed this and then they filed this. But so some broad strokes. So on May 4th of 2018, the murder conviction was vacated by the Connecticut Supreme Court. They vacated the ruling because his attorney had failed to call an alibi witness and Michael was not given a fair trial. So they also based their decision on the strength of the state's case as well as the evidence and witness testimonies. So on October 30th, 2020, 45 years after the murder, Richard Colangelo, the Connecticut chief state's attorney, stated that Michael would not be retried. He said, quote, looking at the evidence, your honor, looking at the state of the case, it is my belief that the state cannot prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. Therefore, the state is going to enter a no lay. And so I actually wasn't familiar with this term, but I did a little bit of looking into it. And it's basically when the state withdraws their charges before a plea or verdict is rendered. And so because there was a new trial that was called, right? They could charge him again because double jeopardy doesn't attach before the final verdict or plea. So it's typically done when they don't think that a person will ever be mentally competent or in a situation like this where we're years later and the evidence isn't looking so good. Interesting. Yeah. So Klingo also said that he, quote, basically reinvestigated the case and wasn't able to find additional evidence to present or to test. In addition, key witnesses had passed away and just too much time had elapsed. And I think that's very true. Like when you're looking at a case that's 45 years ago, as a juror, could you listen to that person testify and go, yeah, you certainly believe this. Like you believe what ha- you you absolutely know what happened 45 years ago. I mean, maybe with like big things, but with little like, what time were you here? Yeah. What was he wearing? What were you watching? Like those type of things kind of fade from your memory naturally. So you can't cross-examine a witness effectively if it's reasonable that they would forget. But then on the other side of it, you're like, if something goes too far, like too long, it's just, oh, well, it happened. It sucks. But people forget things like it just sucks all around sucks. Oh, it absolutely sucks. It absolutely sucks. I mean, at the end of the day, regardless, Martha's still dead. Yeah. And her mom still lost her daughter. And I don't think we're ever really going to know. Right. Yeah. And so how can we create the least amount of damage? Right. Like maybe Michael did it. Maybe he didn't. But what if he was innocent and he has spent his like literal entire adult life thus far trying to prove his innocence? Right. That's a terrifying thought. Or like, I mean, there's a kid who you know is an alcoholic who's in the area. What a convenient scapegoat. I'm not saying like I think that I think I'm kind of like solidly in the middle on this one, but still. But so this case has been on multiple TV shows, including Unsolved Mysteries in 1996. And in 2016, NBC did a Dateline episode called The Murder of Martha Moxley. And Oxygen Network did a three part documentary. There's also several books. And a lot of people think that like there's different people to blame and that it's not Michael. Some people think it is him. So this case left us with what? 300 questions, maybe more? Minimum. So a few big questions. Why wasn't the area searched better early in the morning? From what I understand, the murder took place and then she was dragged about 100 yards, leaving smears of blood. And then it looks like the grass obviously shows drag marks from where the attack happened to where she was actually hidden under some low branches of the tree, right? The branches, from what I understand, touched the ground. So it would have been, I guess, hard to see her. 
But then again, in some of the pictures, it looks like most of her was covered, but there was pieces of her out. And then, of course, the blood. Also, what tree did Michael climb? There are some reports that it was the tree that she was found under and that even before that, Michael and one of his friends had hung out around that tree before. So if that's the case, was he there for the murder? Was he there before it took place? Also, what time did she get murdered? It was said to be right after she left the Skakel property. But then in some reports later on, it says that it could have been much later. So if so, if it was much later, what happened between that time frame? On top of all of that, it's hard to overlook that her pants were down. Was there missed evidence of sexual assault? I saw that there were some cases where today there would have been better checks, but back in the 70s, it, it was a little harder to tell. One other one that I see that circulated a lot was over the years, the handle or the grip of the golf club was talked about being missing. But then there were some reports that it was found years later at the cousin's house but then I couldn't find anything that solidified it either way. I think the thing that gets me with this is that this is a horrible crime. It's a horrible, violent, terrible crime. And leaving her body there was purposeful. Putting it there was purposeful. Yeah, her own house. And it feels cruel, right? Like it's like, look what I did. So to me, as I'm thinking about this, this does not sound like a drunk 15 year old who was jealous or who wanted a girl who didn't want him back or who was drunk out of his mind and didn't know what he was doing and went into a rage or who was on drugs or anything. Like it doesn't sound like a kid to me. It doesn't sound like somebody who was inebriated, intoxicated or just like not in their right mind. It feels purposeful. Yeah, there's a lot that went on with this. And also like a lot of other people's stories. So there were more from like the school. There were more from the neighborhood kids. There's just so many. He did it. No, I don't think he did it. Like going back and forth that it's just sad. And kind of like when we said like, it's been so many years, like it's even hard to retry this case. Some people actually believe that it could be retried one day. But all these people are aging and all these people that have the knowledge. And you know, there are people there has to be someone that knows for sure knows. Well, also like, okay, let's go ahead and say we're talking richy rich people like the Skakels had a driver, right? The adults that were working in the Skakel home who were not family, who I'm sure had signed some form of like NDA at some point, but like really didn't have allegiance to the family other than the fact that they were their employer. If you were an adult then, say you were in your 30s or 40s, you're in your 70s or 80s now. You might not be around anymore. Yeah, it's just tragic. Yeah, it really, really is. And so let us know if you've heard of this case and if you have strong feelings on it or if you've read one of the many books about it. We're intrigued. Right, like I kind of want to buy his cousin's book. Like I kind of want to see all of the finger pointing he has and like his thoughts. And then I know there's a few written and some were like just people that got interested in the case that wrote it, but still interesting. There's a lot of information out there. Yeah, and I think that is another anomaly from this is that for a case with so much information, not knowing what happened. Yeah, yeah, that's awful. So many unanswered questions. What a mess. What a Halloween mess. Today we bring you messy cases. Messy cases. Yes, it's terrible. Tragic. Hopefully the beginning helped you uh, prepare for how terrible all of this was. Yeah. Well, we hope that you have a wonderful, safe Halloween weekend. Tag us in pictures. We'd love to have some fun stories to share with everyone of what you did. We want to know your Halloween costumes. Yeah, your animals Halloween costumes, what you did, horror movies you watched, all the fun stuff. Yeah, we want to see it all. Anything creepy, send it our way. All right, and with that, have a good weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at True Creeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 